Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello, this is The Guardian's Brexit Means podcast, doing its level best to make sense of the fundamentally nonsensical so you don't have to since approximately June 2016. Or is that 1916? I've rather lost count. Anyway, in this episode, just in case you were transported temporarily to another planet last week, Boris Johnson won an election as voters backed his much-repeated promise to get Brexit done and take the country out of the EU by 31st of January next year. And he didn't just win it, he smashed it seizing 365 of the 650 seats in the Commons, a more than comfortable majority of about 80 seats, and the party's best showing in a parliamentary election since Margaret Thatcher triumphed back in 1987. So Johnson's gamble on calling an early vote to break the Commons' deadlock over Brexit has paid off handsomely. The Prime Minister will now move swiftly to ratify the Brexit deal he renegotiated with the EU after being elected party leader and Prime Minister in the summer. Brexit, he said, was now the irrefutable, irresistible, unarguable decision of the British people. Now, some might still argue with that. Rather more people cast their ballot for parties supporting a second referendum than for those proposing an imminent departure, but few would quibble with the conclusion that nearly half a century after it joined and three and a half years after it first voted to leave the European Union, the UK is now pretty much certain to formally do so at the end of next month, entering into a period of transition supposed to last until December 2020. After that, it's on its own. In theory. Because as even the most casual listeners of this podcast will now know, Brexit being Brexit, that is very far from being the end of the story. As I occasionally say when trying to explain the seemingly interminable tergiversations of this whole process to bemused French TV audiences, what we have lived through so far is merely the hors d'oeuvre. The plat de résistance is yet to come. The EU and the UK, its soon-to-be first ex-member, will now have to attempt to define and codify their future relationship, and that promises to be quite some negotiation, especially in just 11 months, which is the maximum the government swears it'll take, and when we have really no idea yet of the Prime Minister's direction of travel. So, what happens now? When will Boris Johnson start pushing his Brexit bill through Parliament? Will it be amended? Can all that actually happen before the 31st of January? Then what needs to be done before talks on that future relationship can begin? What will they cover? What way will Johnson jump? And can the negotiations possibly, as the Prime Minister and his Cabinet colleagues have repeatedly insisted, be completed by the end of next year? What other business will Britain have to get cracking on in order to be ready for departure? And let's not forget, although the government often seems to, there are two sides to this process. What are the EU27 looking for? How will they play this? Well, 
With me to answer these and a host of other equally important questions are three people better qualified than most to address them, namely, in the studio, Anand Menon, Professor of European Politics and Director of the think tank UK in a Changing Europe, and Joe Owen, Director of the Brexit Programme at the Institute for Government, and on the line from Brussels, Guardian correspondent Jennifer Rankin. Welcome to all of you. So let's start, if you don't mind, with a little bit of an election post-mortem. Anand, looking at you first, what's your take on the result? Expected, unexpected, and above all, was Brexit really the question that swung it for Boris Johnson, or were there other factors at play? Almost expected. I mean, I think the pollsters had a good election, it should be said, Uh, and I think they all came pretty close. I think this was sort of towards the margins of the expectations, but it was within the expectations. And you've got to expect that with differential turnout, which we had. So that's the first thing. Second thing, was it Brexit? Well, to the extent that the Conservative Party managed to hoover up the Brexit vote, yes, it was. Uh, There were obviously other issues as well, but the crucial success of the Conservatives was the destruction of the Brexit Party, getting those votes, which meant that it was very, very hard for Labour from that point on. And Labour were hampered by the fact that they had a historically unpopular leader who people, many people found they couldn't vote for. So on the other flank of the Conservative Party, a significant number of Conservative Remainers decided that leaving the EU was better than chancing Jeremy Corbyn. And in the, those northern constituencies, which we talk about a lot, though it has to be said that a lot of the newspapers seem to think the Midlands is the north, but leave that to one side. <laughs> a lot of those northern constituencies, what you saw was falling turnout amongst Labour voters, and that was a lack of enthusiasm for the leader, I think. OK, but that endless let's get Brexit done cut through. Well, it was a clear message, wasn't it? Uh, And that's a good thing to have in an election, particularly when your opponent actually doesn't have a message that you can remember. Um, Joe, now I know it's not your particularly your field, but I mean, Anand mentioned it there, really. But but where do you think Labour and the Lib Dems went wrong as far as their Brexit messages were concerned? And I suppose second to that, has the sort of the Remain camp uh, or even the sort of uh, guys, you know, how about let's have another think about this camp definitely lost the argument now? Yeah, I mean, on the... The Brexit point, I think all of the the kind of three main UK-wide parties tried to tap in with their Brexit policy to the kind of, we'll just stop the pain, guys. We will make this end. For the Lib Dems, that was the, we'll stop and revoke. For Labour, they said they will get Brexit sorted within six months. And then obviously the Conservatives had get Brexit done. That message obviously cut through more. There was obviously more trust that they would actually get it done, even if getting it done means probably a lot longer uh, and many more editions of your podcast. Um, In terms of what happens next for the kind of the opposition, I think this is a really, really interesting question because the kind of revoke Article 50 referendum on the terms of the withdrawal of the that all falls away now. And how do opposition parties change their approach? Do they just say, right, we're now going for soft Brexit. Soft Brexit's our line. We want EEA. But do they actually engage in the, like, the actual deficiencies of that as an option? And actually what we've seen over the last year is opposition parties showing their opposition to Brexit through kind of inane parliamentary procedure, not trying to win the argument, but trying to scupper votes in Mm. Parliament to make things difficult. They've got nowhere near the numbers for that Mm. now. They can't afford to do nonsense with standing orders, etc, etc. So what do they do? How do they shift? What do they actually argue for? And that is, I think, will largely be determined by who becomes next Labour leader. But it is quite unclear. I mean, Joe said something really interesting and important there, which was that all three parties are saying get Brexit done. The Tories haven't over-promised about Brexit. 
for them in their manifesto, this was about getting it done, dealing with any adverse consequences and moving on. There was no hard sell about the sunlit uplands in that manifesto. And I think they will be thankful for that going Mm. forward. Okay, excellent. Jennifer, from the EU's perspective, then, looking just at the actual outcome of the election, you know, even though obviously there were there were still there are still some who would have liked the UK to think again. I mean, the EU 27 were pretty pleased, weren't they? For them, this was a sort of a welcome moment of clarity after months and years of uncertainty. And I I suppose also a feeling that just the sheer size of the Conservative majority after all this time without one is going to give Johnson at least, at the very least, free reign to kind of decide what he actually wants. Yes, I would say, above all, the EU 27 were relieved relieved that finally there was a clear result that that points to to resolution after months and and years of of wrangling and this non-stop Brexit drama. And and just by a quirk of timing, when the results of the uh, exit poll and then later the full results came in, an EU summit was going on in Brussels. So diplomats were able to react very immediately. And that was the sense that I picked up, that they were just relieved that finally the end was in sight of the first phase and that both sides can get on with the negotiating the, the future arrangement, which for the EU is what they're really interested in and, and what they, they want to get down to. But the, the question for them remains, what, what kind of Boris Johnson are they going to be seeing in the next few months? Is it going to be the Boris Johnson of June, the do or die Boris Johnson who is going to stick to his red lines or is it going to be the Boris Johnson of October who moved very rapidly to to make that withdrawal agreement with the EU? So still a question mark in, in the minds of EU players as to how Boris Johnson is going to handle his majority and what exactly he's going to try and, and negotiate. Joe, Can you talk us through the actual sort of nuts and bolts of what's going to happen now then over the next few days and couple of weeks with the Brexit bill in terms of sort of readings, votes, the kind of ping pong between the Lords and the Commons? And I guess, assuming that there are no major hiccups, are we absolutely certain that it'll all be done and dusted by the end of January? I mean, I think we can be pretty certain it would take a very big, unexpected event uh, for uh, not to go through all by um, January 31st. And I think the main thing you'll see now is that all of a sudden parliamentary procedure becomes less interesting. Fewer people are tuning in to BBC Parliament on a Wednesday night to watch um, Commons votes. But the kind of mechanics will be we will see the draft withdrawal agreement bill again this week. Well, the big question will be what has changed? Mm. There's already been some rumours in the press. And then we are likely to have what's called second reading, the big vote this week, which will say, in principle, yes to this legislation. That will be Boris Johnson's big pre-Christmas moment to say, look, we've now got the numbers in Parliament. Mm. This is happening. When they come back, we'll hit committee stage where there'll be a debate around amendments. We can still expect a lot of amendments to be put down, but Mm -hmm. I think it would be a big surprise if any of them actually got numbers in Parliament to make any difference to the legislation. And then it goes to the Lords. I think the Lords will be a really interesting question again, talking about who is the opposition now on Brexit. How much pressure do the Lords apply? Do they push things back to the Commons to say, we're not happy about the way you plan to do this on the Irish Protocol, for example, the broad powers that you're taking? But they're not going to be able to do much. I mean, the government has just won an election based on getting this legislation through by January 31st. The Lords will not get in the way of delivering that deadline. So they may send some amendments back, but they won't push and they won't delay. Okay, and and on those amendments, 
Joe mentioned one on, on Northern Ireland, possibly. And of course, the government has just said last night that it wanted to amend the withdrawal agreement bill to write this sort of ultimate departure date of December 2020 into law uh, and set in stone Johnson's promise that the transition period won't be extended. Why has he decided to do that, do you think? And in practice, is it going to make any difference or is it just a piece of sort of, you know, political theatre? The government can row back on that at a future stage, can't it? And I guess Parliament would want to say, particularly if it looks like an agreement won't be reached in time. Well, on the legislation about extending transition, it is pure gesture politics. There's nothing wrong with gesture politics. I suspect that we'll see quite a lot of it in the months to come. And actually, if handled right, I think this government could do well out of gesture politics, make the most out of leaving lots of domestic policy initiatives in February. So Brexit goes off the first page. So you can just stress the fact that you've got it done. Mm. So I think this government looks like it's going to use that sort of those sort of visuals quite effectively. Uh, And that's, you know, an important tool of politics. But in terms of in Parliament itself, I mean, Joe alluded to it earlier. One of the interesting things is whether on the whatever we call now remain soft Brexit side, people are going to try and say, look, actually, we need a customs union and amendments around that come forward. I'm not sure, to be honest, given the state of the Labour Party at the moment, that they're organised enough to put that sort of thing together at the moment. No, I think that's right. I mean, it'd be really interesting to see just what they do, how they marshal their opposition to the withdrawal agreement bill, if at all, properly. Jennifer, on the EU side, assuming all goes smoothly at this end, then we mustn't forget the European Parliament has to ratify uh, the deal, doesn't it? Is that a foregone conclusion by the 31st of January? And are the EU27 fully ready for sort of what comes after that? The negotiating team for the next phase of Brexit is all in place? I think it is a foregone conclusion that the European Parliament will ratify the the Brexit withdrawal agreement. Uh, And that's largely because Michel Barnier, the EU chief negotiator, has kept the Parliament very informed throughout this whole process. Uh, They wanted to be taken seriously, and, and and he has done that. So I think as a result, we can see the Parliament ratify that withdrawal agreement either in mid January or in late January, depending on the timetable in the UK. And then turning to the second part of your question about the EU27 and what comes next, I think we'll, we'll see a very familiar cast of characters. We will see once again Michel Barnier. He will be uh, leading negotiations. He's now in charge of a rebranded Task Force UK uh, and will be overseeing the whole relationship from trade to security to foreign policy. But uh, we will also see a bigger role for the EU Trade Commissioner, who it happens to be Ireland's Commissioner Phil Hogan. He's already well known in the the Brexit world for being outspoken about, shall we say, about Boris Johnson. For example, he described Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nigel Farage as the free stooges and said they didn't know the first thing about the Irish border. He's also been very scornful of the government's ambitions to be global Britain. So Mm. possibly we might see a more diplomatic uh, approach from Phil Hogan. Now he will be Uh, the figurehead for the EU-UK trade negotiations. But I think we'll certainly be seeing a lot more of him as part of the EU team in the the coming months. Uh, All right, let's have a look at this future relationship then. First, uh, the 
formalities. Joe, now there's a crucial little bit of text, isn't there, I think, as I understand it. And of course, it, it might not be in it when it comes back to Parliament. But as I understand it, the withdrawal agreement bill contains this little clause that says, before talks can begin, a statement of negotiating objectives has first to be approved by the House of Commons. Now, can you tell us what that actually means in practice? Well, I think it means whatever Boris Johnson wants it to mean now that he has such a big majority. So that, you know, as you say, it could not be in the legislation. They could have scrapped it out or it could be Boris Johnson bringing a 40 page detailed mandate to Parliament saying this is exactly what I want. Probably not. I mean, on the other end of the spectrum, it could be one line that says I'm going to negotiate the best trade deal ever and he'll have the numbers to vote it through. So it can really mean whatever he wants. And I think this is, again, one of the interesting changes with the parliamentary dynamic. Before, Parliament was seen as a kind of torture chamber, if you like, for Prime Ministers on (laughs) Brexit, and they tried to avoid it. It was always difficult. It was always hard fought. But actually now it can be a kind of positive part of the process. They can come back, have theatre, have moments where they say, I'm putting my brilliant new negotiating mandate to Parliament and I've just won a whopping majority on it. And that will drive the front pages as opposed to kind of beleaguered prime minister Mm. suffering another defeat or another amendment. So it will be interesting to see how he tries to use parliament as a tool now that it's not a kind of painful exercise. It's not working against him. Exactly. Can he use it for positive moments in some of the theatre that Anand's already mentioned? Anand, I mean, is this not really where we get to the nub of the whole matter? Really, you know, the thing that the government's been dodging since the very start of the process, since after the referendum, this kind of central contradiction between wanting Britain to diverge from EU rules while also wanting a comprehensive trade deal, particularly in in place in a year's time. I mean, that that central conundrum still has to be resolved, doesn't it? Johnson basically has to choose what he wants. Is it going to be a Canada Plus style deal, high on regulatory divergence, but low on single market access or an EEA style deal or a Norway style deal? I mean, what way do you think he's going to jump? I mean, that's perhaps the bizarrest thing of this whole bizarre story is we don't really know for sure what our Prime Minister wants from Brexit. We've had hints. What the Tory manifesto hints at is a pretty loose relationship with the European Union, to be honest. But there's wiggle room. There's wiggle room around the edges on the level playing field conditions that the EU is going to insist on, because what the Tories are talking about is freedom to go beyond. So you could imagine this government signing up to non-regression clauses and saying this is perfectly consistent with what we promised uh, in the election. But we just don't know whether... This is a prime minister who is willing to take an economic gamble and go for a pretty hard sort of Brexit because it's in keeping with the the line of the Vote Leave campaign or someone who is going to say, well, actually, you know, now I've got this whopping majority, I can compromise. I would, if I was forced to, and it's, it's sort of a gut feeling more than anything else, I would go for the former rather than the latter. But only time is going to tell. He's certainly free to do whatever he wants. I don't think, you know, there's going to be any meaningful opposition from Parliament. Even if it looks like he's heading for a really, really hard... Well, I think the key thing is that a lot of the seats that will be most impacted by that sort of hard Brexit are now Tory seats. And whether or not a new intake of Tory MPs, who were essentially elected on Boris's coattails are going to come round and publicly start criticising him. I think he's very, very much up for doubt. So, And, of course, he's got five years. So in that sense, actually, whatever the economic impact of Brexit might be, you've got a pretty long time to start trying mm. to address it via investment, loosening the purse strings, putting money into these places, and mm. so on and so forth. And actually, that is credible in the sense that, you know, if you say, 
no customs union, no regulatory alignment, it's not going to look great for the automobile industry. Here are some steps we are taking to deal with those places, to invest in those places, to put some infrastructure in, to deal with retraining the workforce. You can't solve everything with money, but you can certainly cushion the shock. And politically, Mm. that's the crucial thing. Now, Jennifer, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, has warned that continued regulatory harmonisation would, of course, be the price for protecting that flow of UK-EU trade and preserving British access to the single market. I mean, basically, the EU stance, if we don't know what Boris Johnson's stance is going to be, uh, the EU stance is pretty clear, isn't it? Basically, the more ambitious the trade deal, the more regulatory harmonisation alignment is, is going to be needed. I mean, does the EU27 actually have a preferred outcome of these talks? Uh, is it ready for something else, if that's what Britain wants? And how significant, you know, once it actually gets down to the negotiations, is the, is the question of sort of different national interests going to be in the EU's negotiating stance? Well, a lot of interesting questions there. I, I think when it comes down to it, the one thing that will unite the EU is maintaining the the single market, maintaining the level playing field. And it's really not just Macron's issue at all. It goes to everybody. Ursula von der Leyen uh, on on Friday uh, said that in order to get an agreement for zero tariffs, zero quotas on goods, the UK would need to sign up to zero dumping. So basically respecting EU core standards on workers' rights and environmental protection. And that's become the new EU slogan. I think it was Barnier himself who coined the phrase zero tariffs, zero quotas, zero dumping. So we're going to hear a lot more of that over the next few weeks. And why it's so crucial for member states, it was actually explained to me by one diplomat who said he had a a company in in his country whose main competitor was in the UK. And he said that 40% of their costs come from complying with EU chemicals regulation. So that company would simply go out of business if it's suddenly being faced with a competitor who doesn't face those costs. So this was sort of summed up for me as we're, we're not just negotiating with the UK, we are negotiating the future of our single market. And I and I found that a really sort of helpful frame to understand what's at stake for the, for the EU here. So I think that is something that will unite them. But of course, every member state has slightly different economic interests. Some have a, a closer relationship with the UK. So there is potential for making it harder to manage EU 27 unity in the second phase. But that's something we'll, we'll just have to, to wait and see how, how that unfolds and, and whether the people in Brussels, whether Barnier can keep the, the 27 together as he's managed to do to a large extent so far. This question of sort of avoiding unfair competition that is gonna, that's going to bring them together, you think? I think that's absolutely crucial and it is going to be a unifying force despite the fact there are different economic interests at stake and also fish we can't we can't forget fish it might be a very small uh, industry but it's of huge importance to about eight or nine member states and they're going to be very united on getting a deal with the UK that will more or less preserve the status quo. Anand now Ursula von der Leyen has also said, Jennifer just mentioned there, but but she's also said that, that talks on the future relationship are inevitably going to drag on beyond 2020 and certain parts of the deal are going to have to be prioritised and others left for later. What bits do you think could be sorted fast? What's going to need more time? And how is all that going to affect the government's pledge not to extend the transition period? 
I mean, in principle, with willing on both sides, things like equivalence for financial services, you could probably do that quite quickly. I mean, what I should warn, though, we, we, this is a debate we had and have sort of forgotten. What businesses don't want is multiple periods of adaptation. So what they don't want is to come out of transition, to adapt to a new a new status quo and then have to adapt again when another deal comes in later on. And I think that is something that businesses will be stressing to the government. It's all very well saying we can get this in three years, but if we have to change our business model twice in the interim, that is very, very costly for us. And of course, what's interesting is missing from your list is anything to do with defence or counter-terrorism or police cooperation or data sharing yeah, in the fight well, against crime. Come on to that in a bit. Well, at least all the sort of the, 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 the extraneous bits to trade will come on yeah. a little bit uh, later. But, yeah. but I mean, it's worth stressing, we have a very, mm. very broad as well as a very, very deep relationship mm. with the European Union. And that's one of the reasons why I think most people are sceptical that we can get all of this dealt with, signed, sealed and delivered by the end of next year. Whether that means the Prime Minister will go back on his pledge not to, ex- not to extend transition, I just do not know. What I suspect is that in Brussels there are some conversations going on about how do you extend transition without extending transition. Okay, Joe, address that if you would. But also this point that that we're hearing, you know, we're hearing a lot now since the since the election from conservative politicians, former ministers, etc., that somehow the size of Boris Johnson's majority is going to give him more clout in the negotiations. I mean, it obviously gives him more clout in Westminster. But isn't it a kind of a classic British category error to assume that it's actually going to change anything once he's in talks with the EU and it gets down to the nuts and bolts of negotiating of what the EU wants and what he wants. And isn't there also a danger, uh, kind of parallel to that, that the time pressures that he's piled on himself by saying, I'm not going to extend beyond the end of 2020, are actually going to force him into accepting concessions? So I think Brussels will definitely see this as a prime minister that is easier to do business with because he has a majority and his ability to deliver on what is agreed in Brussels is much greater than he probably was before. He needed a general election and certainly Theresa May and the kind of precarious parliamentary position that she was in. But they will also be looking at his majority and thinking we can put some of that to good use. If we can dial up our ask and he can afford to swallow more concessions than maybe he could have if it was a very narrow majority and he had to keep the entire Conservative Party with him mm. if he wanted to get it through Parliament. So I, def- I don't think he will then walk into the room and suddenly from this feeling very much like 27 versus 1, it will very much start feeling like 1 versus 1 because we've got a parliamentary majority of 80 in Westminster. Mm. In terms of whether he's boxed himself into a corner with the deadline, I mean... This is his revealed preference of how he liked negotiating in the first phase, right? He did two things. One was run right up against the deadline and wait for a deal to pop out. And then his preferred argument was always, it's my deal versus no deal. And now by not extending the transition, he is most able to do that. He will be able to wait for a deal to pop out. And then he really can say to Parliament, it's now this deal or no deal. We need to accept it. So his revealed preference of how he likes to negotiate in the first phase would suggest that he is unlikely to extend certainly in June but whether as Anand said they then start to have conversations around okay well that's the deal we've got this legal text but now we need to transfer this into the systems and processes Mm. of government and businesses what can we do in order to get more time for that I think that will be a separate question that will probably come later in the talks possibly beyond June and the extension deadline. Okay, so Anne, and another another cliff edge looms? Yeah, I mean, this point is fascinating because, I mean, the political science literature would suggest that you're strongest in negotiations when you can credibly claim to be weakest at home. 
That is to yeah. say, you know, the greater the constraints on you, the more you can go, look, you have to give me some concessions because I can't get this through. Mm. And in fact, Boris Johnson illustrates that by constraining himself. The point of tying your own hands is to say to the opposition, well, look, I've promised I can't extend this now, so you need to get a deal. Uh, so actually having a bigger majority is going to be seen by the EU as an excuse to drag more flexibility, as Joe said, out of the prime minister, mm. not something that necessarily mm. strengthens him. And that's what the EU are very good at. They will go through their very lengthy, very complicated mandate setting process and say, I'm really sorry, but this is the mandate. And if you want something different, 27 states, and <laughs> yeah, it could all fall apart. I'm really sorry. And that is why they are effective at negotiating. And as you said, the UK now has suddenly looks like it's got a lot more flexibility. Yeah. OK, Je I mean, Jennifer, is that the way you see it as well? Um, I mean, what's the EU's take on the size of, of, of Johnson's majority? I mean, and also on the time limit. I mean, but surely Michel Barnier's famous phrase from the first phase, you know, that the clock is ticking is going to be a factor, isn't it? Yes, I think we'll we'll probably hear that um, phrase again a, a few times. But on on the EU twenty seven mandate, I think they will move fairly quickly to uh, to adopt it. But then Joe's absolutely right; it will be for the EU it, a constraining factor as well. That they will they will then say, well, we can't move on this because we've already agreed the mandate. It's been set by EU leaders, set by EU countries. Therefore, these are our constraints. And I think that's why. A lot of people in the EU think that the time period is, is inevitably going to con constrain what what can be agreed with the UK. So it does appear that most people think you could do a you could do some trade agreement on goods, a very basic agreement that would allow you to keep the trade in goods going. But that will be a problem for for the UK because it leaves out services, and that's where the UK has a big um, economic advantage at the moment because it sells more to the EU than the other way around. So I, I think that's where we could see the real flashpoints in the negotiations next year when there's a realisation that the, maybe the EU will be going for something very basic on goods and the UK will be saying, well, hang on, what about our financial services sector, which, by the way, a lot of European firms are also benefiting from. So I think when we get into the, the really sort of difficult bits of negotiations, these are the issues that are going to come front and centre. Mm. I mean, and, and on the UK side, where are the flashpoints going to come, do you think? I mean, there is going to be an insistence, isn't there, on the EU's part of, of alignment or acceptance of things like environmental standards and, 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 and norms for state aid and that kind of thing. Are those going to pose real problems, significant problems on the UK side? I mean, they could do. It depends what direction the government wants to take, which I know is a rubbish answer, but I think it's an honest <laughs> one uh, in the sense that, you know, before the election, Boris Johnson talked about by British provisions and uh, changing uh, procurement rules and things like that. Well, then he'll run up to problems in the negotiations with the EU as well as with WTO rules, almost certainly. So if he decides to go in that direction, then yes, there will be issues over signing up to EU state aid rules. We just don't know yet how allergic the government is going to be to aligning with any form of EU rules mm. or how flexible the EU is going to be about mechanisms whereby they can ensure compliance short of the European Court of Justice. Joe, just looking at the kind of mechanics of it, um, quite interestingly, Raoul Ruparel, who was Theresa May's former special advisor on, on Brexit, said quite recently that the UK isn't match fit for the next phase of the negotiations. And there's a huge amount of work still to be done on the detail of what the UK actually wants and Whitehall's simply not ready to negotiate such a complex and wide-ranging agreement. Is he right? Yeah, I think he is. You can read the full paper on the Institute for Government website <laughs> if you want to uh, uh, to see the details. But I think that's right. I mean, 
a lot of the thinking around what the next phase that we're about to enter will look like in Whitehall was done under Theresa May. And it was done over the course of 2018 before it became very clear that this deal was A, unlikely to get through Parliament and B, would not she would not be the person leading the next phase. And then when Johnson came in, a lot of the focus was on A, no deal, just sucking people from across the system to start working on no deal rather than the next phase. And then also on these changes to the withdrawal agreement. So what does a Johnson next phase negotiating mandate that's not the thing that goes to Parliament, but is the thing that his team take out to Brussels saying this is where we can negotiate, this is the kind of deal we want? What does that look like? I don't think Johnson knows yet. And I don't think Whitehall has started to have the conversations across government making those necessary trade-offs yet Mm. to work out exactly what the details are. I'm sure some of those conversations have started but not yet and Johnson cannot run this phase of talks like he ran the last one where he had a very small team wrapped around his chief EU advisor and number 10 that kind of dipped into the rest of Whitehall to bring in expertise this will be a much bigger negotiation you're not making surgical changes to an existing legal text Mm. and so it will need to run differently but exactly how we're still not sure we're not sure okay Jennifer now Anand mentioned this earlier but you know the future relationship it's it's about far more than trade, isn't it? We are, and we often forget that. From the EU perspective, what are the other main areas that are going to need to be addressed? And is there any way they might influence the outcome of the trade talks, or are they going to be completely separate? I think they will be. The different areas will be more or less kept separate. But it is it is definitely worth the reminder that this relationship is about far more than trade. It's about foreign policy. It's about security. It's also about research and, and education and cultural ties. It really sort of runs a, across a huge range of areas, which is what the EU does, which many people in the UK tend not to, to focus on, which I suppose reveals something about our debate about the EU and, and how we got here in the first place. So first of all, just on foreign policy, just to take one example, are the UK and EU going to continue to coordinate on sanctions against Russia? Or if we look at domestic security, will the UK still be having some equivalent to the EU's passenger name record directive? That's the the system where airlines collect data on passengers with the aim of preventing terrorism and, and, and human trafficking. Or we can think about research. Is the is the UK going to be part of the EU research funding programmes that, that allow UK-based scientists and researchers to undertake their, their work with EU funds? It's, it's something that the UK is currently a net beneficiary from. I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. You could come up with a with hundred other questions on all the on many different policy areas. And I think while there's there's generally a, a consensus that often these other areas, whether it's foreign policy or security, are often easier because, of course, there's a consensus that everyone wants to to fight terrorism and to make Europe strong and influential in the world. But on the other hand, when you actually start to, to get into the detail, there are lots of really difficult questions. For example, that, that data sharing that I mentioned earlier on the, the passenger name record, that also involves some oversight of the European Court of Justice. So every everywhere you step, there's a, a difficult area to be to be negotiated. So there's there is a huge um, unending flow of, of work to be to be done, not just on on trade. But I don't think the trade talks will be tied to the security talks. It does seem that both both sides have now said they they don't want to trade a good trade deal for for security. I mean, Theresa May tried to make that link before, and the government has now rode back from that. Uh, and it certainly appears the EU doesn't want to make that link of saying that 
that trade and, and security somehow have to be to be bargained together. So I think I think both sides will try to keep them separate. Um, and and at the same time, there's also going to be trade talks going on with other countries, mm-hmm. are there not? Can you imagine a situation in which those trade talks with, for example, the US could impinge on or impact on the trade talks with the EU? I mean, for example, if concessions have to be made to the US to secure the kind of deal that Boris Johnson might want with with, with Donald Trump on kind of requirements for checks on goods going into Northern Ireland or whatever, I mean, that's going to surely affect affect what's going on in the in the European negotiations, no? There, there will be an impact. I yeah. mean, if, for instance, the United States say, OK, we need your environmental regulations to change, then that affects our ability to sign up to environmental mm-hmm. regulations with the EU. Absolutely. And of course, bear in mind, the other way around works as well, which is any putative trading partner, the first thing they're going to ask us is, what is your relationship at with and your access to the European Union going to look like because ultimately that affects how much we get out of this relationship. One of the reasons the Japanese invested here uh, from the 1970s where we were seen as a gateway to Europe. So that relationship with the European Union is going to be key in determining how other members, how, how other states, not EU states, yeah. approach these negotiations. Yeah. Joe, we're getting to the end now, so just briefly, but there is a lot of organisational stuff sort of rumoured to be in the pipeline, isn't there? DEX-EU, rather, Department for Exiting the EU, possibly merging with the Department for International Trade. HMRC has to get cracking on all those kind of new processes and systems it's going to need in Northern Ireland. There's going to have to be special committees working out all the detail of the UK-Northern Ireland trade arrangements, all that. I mean, how's that going to impact the government's actual capacity to handle the talks. Is everything going to be ready in time? So I think you will see the end of the the Brexit department, the XEU, at the end of January. I think it's likely it'll be folded into the Cabinet Office as opposed to merging with the IT, in part to bring it close to the Prime Minister and avoid the issues that plagued the first phase of having a separate Secretary of State that wasn't perfectly aligned with the Prime Minister who uh, either ended up resigning or, in Steve Barclay's case, putting forward a motion and then uh, immediately voting against it. There are other changes around borders and immigration that are suggested. We don't really know the details yet. I mean, the point on will everything be ready, I think regardless of the kind of Whitehall deck chairs being rearranged, the answer is no, not everything will I be mean, done. I mean, physical infrastructure, there's a, I mean, we don't have a great record on implementing new whole-scale, wholesale new systems, do we? In, well, in not a good country. record, and also <laughs> you just can't shrink the timelines for some <laughs> of them. And so the question for the government is, is it prepared to kind of put them live make them active when they're not quite finished yet. I mean, the government has talked before about the fact that even under no deal, the deadline is just a staging post. A lot of these project plans, if you go into Whitehall and you look at their big boards, they will go right out into the middle of the 2020s. The deadline of when things change with the EU are an important staging post, but work will have to continue to refine what UK border infrastructure and systems look like, what does good look like there, how do our new regulators work. Yes, we can have kind of basic functions in place, but they'll be working on this and refining it for years and years mm-hmm. to come. The question for government is, what is its, you know, the Prime Minister is, what is his level of appetite for kind of pressing on and switching these things on when they're not quite ready ready. and it could cause some disruption. Final question, Jennifer, just very briefly. What happens from the EU end if these systems aren't ready yet, if the port infrastructure isn't there? 
Well, within within the Irish Protocol, there there are um, arrangements for joint working groups between the UK and EU. So they will be meeting regularly to to monitor the implementation of all the arrangements on the Irish border. And if things aren't working as they should be, then there's a, a disciplinary process that can be gone through. But I I can imagine they would try not to use that in in the first instance, but to try and and make things work as best they can. But still, a bit too early to tell how that's really going to play out all right well we are pretty much there i just let's conclude with the now customary question to all of you next episode of brexit means is going to be in just under a month's time january the 14th is everything going to be on track for an exit on the 31st of january and for the talks on the future relationship to begin jennifer what do you reckon i think yes and that the boris boris johnson's majority now makes brexit more predictable than it has been okay Joe? Yes, I think next time you see big Brexit speed bumps won't come until we're out and we're in the, the next phase of talks. And Anand? Yes. Excellent. My God, unanimity around the table. Extraordinary. That really is it for this episode. Uh, my thanks to Anand, to Joe, to Jennifer. Uh, Brexit means, as I said, we'll be back in a little under four weeks' time. In the meantime, please do subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers, join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. Till then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Ian Chambers. This was Brexit Means, and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed... The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centred higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.